0: Hey, hi, hello there. You are tuned in to Skin in the Game, The Stories My Tattoos Tell, an intimate author experience, written and performed by me, disabled author and artist Kelly J. Mendenhall. Let's discover my book together, shall we? Hey, hi, hello there. Welcome to episode four of Skin in the Game, The Stories My Tattoos Tell, an Intimate Author Experience. I am Kelly J. Mendenhall, and last week we read most of chapter four. So we'll revisit that in a second. There's a couple of things I wanted to tell you. One is that I have created a coloring book and some of the pages have cartoon or like clip art type versions of my tattoo designs. Some of the pages are actual photographs of myself and my tattoos turned into line drawings for coloring. There, There's a few few different things in there. I've got one page where all of my tattoos are gone and it says, whoops, I lost all my tattoos. Draw me some new ones. So it's a fun little coloring book that I made that I am going to give away for free for anyone who rates and reviews the podcast. So all you have to do is go to Apple podcast and, or Spotify and give me a rating and review and send a screenshot of that to my email or hit me up in my DMs on any social media, send me that screenshot showing me that you submitted your rating and review, and I'll send you the free coloring book. It's pretty rad. I made it myself. I designed it myself. There are, like I said, kind of more cartoony versions of of art based on some of my tattoos in the book. And then the photos turned into coloring pages, which is kind of rad. It was actually my friend Nicole that gave me the idea in a group coaching call with our coach, Brittany. So, you know, it occurs to me that I haven't done a good job of introducing myself for anyone who doesn't know me and maybe is just discovering me for the first time by listening to this podcast. I forget sometimes that I have to reintroduce myself. So I became suddenly medically disabled in 2017 and for a couple of years dealt with a lot of medical gaslighting and being a mystery for quite some time. That was what prompted me to start writing and blogging about medical gaslighting. And that started in about 2018. And because of who I am as a person, I couldn't accept that that this was happening at all but I figured if it was happening to me it was probably happening to others and that led me down a whole research rabbit hole and I became a medical activist and advocate working to stop medical gaslighting so that's kind of how I came into the online digital scene back in 2017 was with my blog nerdzilla lives and everybody knew me as Kelly Nerdzilla Mendenhall. And, excuse me, I have to take a drink because, again, cotton mouth because I smoked the devil's lettuce to control my pain. I actually just had another spinal procedure a few days ago. I'm recording this on August 16th. It was August 11th that I had a medial branch spinal nerve ablation at three levels of my spine in my low back on both sides. So quite a bit of killing nerves basically in my back to stop pain signals from getting to my brain. And this is an attempt to manage my pain well enough so that we can avoid surgeries, more surgeries, for as long as possible. So in 2017, I suddenly become medically disabled. I started experiencing medical gaslighting and writing about it as I'm pursuing my diagnoses and trying to figure out all the pieces to the puzzle. And by 2019, it was finally discovered in June of 2019 that I'd actually had a disc that ruptured right underneath my bottom rib in what's called your thoracic spine. And because of all the medical gaslighting, that had been happening and doctors refusing to do full spinal MRIs and things like I was requesting, that rupture was allowed to grow and it grew into like calcified bone cells into a mass and that mass crushed my spinal cord and deformed it. And then I had some other stuff going on in my neck, in the cervical spine. So from December 2018 until, what was it? October of 2020, so less than two years, I had four total spinal surgeries. And then, in addition to all of that gaslighting and like putting all those pieces together, I had also been having issues with my cycles, and it a lot of male OB-GYNs had gaslit me a lot and told me it was because I was too I weighed too much or this. I had doctors tell me that my periods were just painful because I hadn't had any children yet. And if I was going to keep not having children as I got older, it was just going to get worse and worse. So that's what it's like living in the Bible. (laughs) But anyway, turns out I had severe endometriosis and the tissue from inside of my uterus was, was growing outside of my uterus. And in my case, it had filled my pelvis And it had attached itself to my sciatic nerve and my glute muscles and all kinds of fun stuff. And in addition to all of that going on, I had a heart-shaped uterus with a septum down the middle and some fibroid tumors. I feel like you guys are hearing my dog's tags jingle right now because I forgot to take her collar off before I started recording. (laughs) Petunia, just lay down. Lay down. Sorry about that. Anyway, so, um, frick, what was I trying to say? Um, oh, so I had, ultimately, I had a medically necessary hysterectomy, and I had, um, all the, the fibroid tumor and the little cysts and things, everything was removed. And, um, so that happened in September and October of 2020. So from December, 2018, again, to, uh, October of 2020, six total surgeries, four spinal surgeries, and then two abdominal surgeries, including, a medically necessary hysterectomy that was a lot to go through during the years that i was going through all of this i had managed to have a really successful indie podcast i had a co-host it was called a non-mom happy hour so i had i had a blog i had this successful podcast i was doing the medical journalism and writing for a website called spy nation and all this but then you know i had all those surgeries including a hysterectomy in less than two years, and quite frankly, stepped into a big fat mental breakdown. While all of this was happening, in the background, or sort of (laughs) umbrella-ing, the situation was the fact that I was fighting for disability benefits, for Social Security disability benefits. So even though I stopped working, I stopped being able to work outside the home in June of 2017, I started applying for disability benefits in, I think, April or May of 2018. And I had my first hearing in 2019. My benefits were denied. So I actually had to sue the federal government and (laughs) fight for my disability benefits that way. And it worked. I did it. I did what everyone says you can't do. And I sued the federal government and won. And I got my disability benefits. But I'm sure you can imagine the stress that I was under for all of that time with no income, no meaningful income, nothing to like support myself on. All this medical gaslighting, dealing with the legal system, and then on top of that, I'm just trying to survive this horrible pain that I'm in all the time. So... It was, it was an intense, it was an intense journey. And I finally won my disability case in June of 2022. So, so from 20, from like January, 2021 or so until about, November of 2022, I was kind of just in a really long mental health crisis and just doing my best to survive and rebuild life. And I'd gotten out of a really toxic and abusive living situation with an ex-partner in Tennessee. When I came home to Michigan, I was rebuilding from scratch. And things are great now. I have my person, Jeff. We, I, you might actually hear about him in this book, so I'll tell you more about Jeff later, but I wanted to kind of fill you in. So that's kind of my background. I have a master's in public administration, a bachelor's in political science. I worked my whole adult career in the nonprofit sector and then suddenly couldn't work anymore. And that's when I started writing for a living. And that's when I published this book. I had a podcast. I had all these things going on. But for the last couple of years, I kind of had to take a break and step back and just take care of myself and make sure that I could survive before I, you know, the whole, like, breathe your own oxygen before you give the mask to somebody else type thing. I had to take time for me. So then after this, when I started to come out of the fog of this big breakdown, that's when I started like having all these ideas for the Affordable Art Revolution and this podcast. My mission with the Affordable Art Revolution is to spread love and joy to Spoonies and disabled people everywhere through art and the written word. Well, my printed book cost $25.99 because of the full color photographs. And that price didn't feel great to me. Not that I'm not worth it or my work's not worth it, but $25.99 is a lot to spend on a book, especially when it's 180 pages. But the cost of printing these full color photographs is just, it's a big deal. So when I had the idea for this podcast, I was like $4.99 for a subscription. They can either listen to the episodes all at once if they want and cancel the subscription. They can listen to it over time. It's totally up to them. And this is a more affordable and accessible way for people to experience my book. That was the goal with this podcast. And so I hope that you feel we're achieving that. I hope that you're enjoying the experience. And it's it's definitely an experience for me because I don't remember a lot of this. And I'll be honest, the last few weeks, I think I've been avoiding recording episode four in some ways on some like subconscious level because it is a really hard chapter I've I've had to tell some really ugly truths about myself and other people and it was a hard chapter to write it's a hard chapter to read in some ways but let's get back to it so when we left off and I realized my pages, in my book are different than yours because if you have a printed copy of the book, there are more pages and yours will be slightly off because my copy that I have is the original very first printing of the book, which originally in the printing of the book, we tried printing the photographs on the backside of whatever page it fell on at the end of the chapter. But Because, again, of the the quality of the full-color photographs, it just doesn't look very good if you have one photo on the front of a page and another photo on the back or whatever. So we had to make the photo pages their own entity. So for you all listening, the good news is you get free access to see all the photos because there are links in the show notes to go to the different folders with images From each chapter. So yeah, let's let's get back into it. Chapter four, I left off with I got up begrudgingly, and with much less chutzpah than I'd previously had, but I got up. Life resumed, it's weird brand of ordinary, and I dove back into family life with Angela and the boys, along with my niece. Don't ever think it can't get worse. What I know now is that Angela was highly addicted to pain pills and was selling them. She was also openly using them in front of my niece and her two sons. I learned many years later that she even started supplying my niece with drugs, using them as a bribe for my niece to stay up with her and clean the house. I had a feeling back then that something was going on, and I tried calling my sister to convince her that it wasn't safe for my niece to live with Angela anymore. The warnings fell on deaf ears. My sister, of course, confronted Angela with the things I'd told her, and Angela convinced her that I was crazy and that everything at her house was just fine. It was utterly surreal to live through. Meanwhile, Angela's kids were still my world. Some days, I think they were the only thing that kept me going. At some point, the boys became enthralled with the cartoon movie robots and began speaking in robot speak. They would say, I love you, Aunt Kelly, beep, beep, or I'm a robot, beep, beep. They would act like robots with stiff joints and walk around the apartment bumping into things or falling over and pretending their batteries had run out. I played along and called them my little robots. About this time, I started dating a tattoo artist named Brandon. He was a mediocre tattoo artist and a subpar human being. I was in such a depressed and defeated state of mind that I was the perfect girl for a raging alcoholic narcissist. He was about my fourth raging alcoholic narcissist romantic partner at this point in my life. That's true. I was notoriously bad at picking. Brandon was really good at playing the victim and pretending like he really, really was trying to get himself together. It was just that everyone was against him and wanted him to fail. My financial situation went from bad to worse as Brandon moved into my place. He hoarded all of his earnings from tattooing and proceeded to suck the life out of me physically and emotionally. Looking back, I realized that he and Angela were just male and female counterparts, and they were both sucking me dry. No surprise, then, that they would stay in touch as friends long after I kicked both of them out of my life. Before I worked up the courage to kick Brandon out of my apartment, he put three tattoos on me. One for Angela and two for the boys. When Angela and I had been in high school, we used to say olive you or greenish brown female sheep instead of I love you. We'd heard it on a Lifetime movie. So to commemorate our friendship, I got an olive you. It looks a lot like the Serta sheep, but she's colored like an olive. I got two robots for the boys. One is dragging his heart behind him, and the other is floating in the clouds, carried away by the heart balloon tied around his waist. I used to tell the boys that the flat-hearted, sad robot was what I looked like before they came into my life, and the happily floating balloon heart robot was what my life looked like with them in it. Angela's husband would come and go whenever he had leave, and it was always really hard to tell what was actually going on between them. She would swear that they were divorced and she wanted nothing to do with him, but whenever he was in town, he still acted romantically interested. Sometime in 2007, he came home for good, stationed back in Georgia. Angela and the boys moved there to be with him, taking my niece along. Over the next year, Angela would travel back and forth to Michigan a handful of times. Each time, her behavior would be more erratic. Her husband would try and tell me that she was doing heavy drugs, specifically cocaine, and needed help. For whatever reason, I refused to believe it. What I didn't know then is that she was using cocaine quite heavily in addition to the pain pills and dropping acid whenever her husband was away, according to what my niece told me years later. To add insult to injury, she and her friends were providing drugs to my niece, who was just 16. Finally, enough is enough. In 2008, Angela drove up to Michigan with my niece and the boys the week that my middle sister got married. My niece and I attended the wedding while Angela went on a bender. My niece finally went back home with my oldest sister, to Florida, after the wedding. Over the next week, Angela kept trying to withdraw cash from my niece's checking account, where her social security check was deposited each month. It wasn't long after the wedding when Angela's parents would be away on a cruise. I would be in El Salvador for a study abroad program. I had just started graduate school in May of 2008. And Angela would be shacked up in her parents' home on a heroin bender. She and the junkie guy who was with her pawned all her mother's jewelry and stole all the cash her dad had at the house. The boys were with her the whole time. When I came back from El Salvador two weeks later, I returned to dozens of panicked voicemails from Angela, screaming at me that she was pregnant again and needed an abortion. She was furious. How could I do this to her and refuse to answer my phone? (laughs) I'll never forget that. Like, literally came home from El Salvador, got into my apartment, found my phone, and turned it on, and there was, like, voicemail after voicemail. I called her back and reminded her that I'd been in Central America. Next thing I know, she shows up at my apartment with the boys. They looked like they'd been through hell. They were crying, saying that they were hungry. It looked like they hadn't had a bath in days. I asked her when the boys had last eaten, and she'd responded with a surprising amount of apathy. I don't know. At one point during her visit, Angela turned and snapped at her older son. Yeah, well next time your dad calls, tell him you're fucking hungry. At that moment, I knew that her husband had been right all along, and I was a fool. I didn't have much food in my apartment, but I cooked up all of the miscellaneous odds and ends I could find, and fed them. It was a small buffet of frozen chicken tenders, french fries, and other things. When Angela left with the boys, she told me they were going to a house that I was pretty sure was rampant with junkies and 'er ne'er-do-wells, and I immediately called her husband. I told him he needed to get to Michigan ASAP, because the boys were not safe with Angela. I said I was sorry that I hadn't listened, that I had argued with him. It was painfully apparent that something was very wrong. Weeks later, Angela's parents and husband had all agreed on a plan. Angela was pretending to have a job at a bar. Hell, maybe she actually did work there. I don't know. The idea was to wait for a night when she said she would be working. After Angela left, her parents called her husband, who called me. I drove my car to Angela's house, where I met her husband. We loaded the kids, and as many of their belongings as we could, into his SUV. I'll never forget the look on her family's faces. Her parents and oldest sister looked not only devastated, but terrified. Her dad turned to me and said, I always thought it would be you. I figured with all the crazy hair, shit hanging out of your face, and the tattoos, that you'd be the one who was on drugs. There was a small part of me that just for a moment wished that it was me, so that I didn't have to see the pain in his eyes as he watched his grandsons loaded into a car, not knowing when he might see them again. The boys rode with their dad and I followed behind, We drove to Ann Arbor and stopped again at Joey's parents' tattoo shop so that I could say goodbye one more time. Then their dad took them home to Georgia. That was the last time I saw them. I walked inside to tattoo the pain away. I haven't spoken to Angela since. Whew, I'll never forget that. We were at the tattoo shop. That night, I was there with a couple of friends because we were getting a tattoo to commemorate our trip to El Salvador. And so that's why we picked the tattoo shop as a stopping point for me to say goodbye to the kids and stuff. And it sucked so bad. Like, I remember when they pulled away thinking, like, I'm probably never going to see them again. And they had been my life. For a few years at that point. It was a feeling of relief. Getting them away from her. But. Sorrow. Because. My heart ached. Knowing I probably wouldn't see them again. And their dad and I. Stayed in touch for a while. He used to have the boys call me. And tell me good luck. Before exams and stuff. Because I was in grad school. But at some point. He took Angela back. And she barred him and the boys from having any communication with me or with her parents or sisters or anything. So for many years, we didn't know what was going on or what was happening. Eventually, their dad got away from her for good, and he's remarried to an amazing woman now. There were times when Angela would get the boys back by herself, for a while and put them through all kinds of hell. But several years ago, eventually, their dad and stepmom got to take them home for good. And things have been much better for them ever since that day. But the damage was was done. There was a lot of damage done by their mom before they finally got away from her. And I had somebody ask me recently who read my book if I ever got to see them again and I've only gotten to see the youngest once in 2022 so it had been it had been a really long time coming and a reunion that I dreamt about and prayed for for a really long time and hopefully I'll get to go see both boys and their family soon they're not They're not my little boogies anymore. My little babies. They're all grown up. One's twenty one and one's eighteen. So Oh my god, he's about to be nineteen. So yeah. That was a heavy chapter. So I guess man, chapter five is two. (laughs) So we'll we'll get started in chapter five. The midnight train. See the hills from afar standing on my beat-up car. The sun went down, and the night fills the sky. Now I feel like me once again as the train comes rolling in. Smoked my boredom gone. Slapped my brains up so high. Give me something to do to kill some time. Take me to that place that I call home. Take away the strains of being lonely. Take me to the tracks at Christie Road. Those are lyrics from the song Christy Road by Green Day. Flint, Michigan. I was born and spent my younger, formative years in Flint, Michigan. Our stepdad, Ken, moved in around the same time dad passed. My parents were already splitting up when we found out my dad had cancer. Although we moved to Davison for a few years throughout dad's illness, we landed back in Flint when I was five or six. It was just before a birthday for me. Flint is not an easy place to grow up. Flint was scary. We couldn't wear the starter jackets we got for Christmas when I was in the sixth grade because kids were getting shot and robbed for them way too often. There was also the issue of accidentally wearing gang colors in the wrong territory because the jackets were so brightly colored to match the sports teams represented. Nike shoes were another thing that kids would get shot and robbed for. A friend of mine missed school once in the fourth grade because a bullet grazed her head when she was on her way to school with her mother and sister. My friend and her family lived in the north end of Flint, which has always been the worst part of town for as long as I can remember. There was a drive-by shooting that morning, and their family just happened to get caught in the crossfire. When I was 11 years old, My mother and stepfather decided to move my sister Sarah and me out of Flint once and for all. Amber was already on her own by then, in college, and with a child of her own. My parents decided to leave for the same reasons everyone else wanted to leave, I suppose, the violence, the poor jobs and shitty schools, and for the change of scenery and a fresh start. My parents were right to have concerns about us living out the rest of our young lives in Flint. It didn't have much of a future to offer us. We moved to a small town about 60 miles south of Flint called Chelsea. It was one of the many towns that were conveniently located just far enough away from Detroit for white people who wanted to work in the city but not live there. It's only claimed to fame is that this is where Jiffy Mix, yes, the corn muffin mix, is made. <laughs> Chelsea, my friend, one of my dear friends works at the Jiffy Mix plant, and it's just funny. It's a funny culture. But anyway, Chelsea offered no diversity, no tolerance and no room for us. We were hated in part because we were the new kids in town and in part because where we came from, there were black people. Moreover, we were friends with them. Imagine the horror. It was an absolute shit show living in Chelsea, and I was bullied from about the very moment I arrived until the moment I left Chelsea schools and switched to Stone High School in Ann Arbor in 10th grade. My Vietnam. After a few years in Chelsea, when I was around 12, my mom and stepdad split up. I was 14 when my mother became engaged to my second stepfather, Mark or John Doe Dad Number 2, as I came to call him. <laughs> I was a little damaged by my mom's split with my first stepdad. After the engagement, our families were blended into one dreadfully dysfunctional household, consisting of myself, my mom and stepdad, my older sister Sarah, and my two stepbrothers. My stepbrothers, who were twins, were almost exactly one year older than I was. They were the closest thing to pure evil I have ever encountered. Our parents hadn't even married yet when one of them strangled me while I was nearly unconscious, a friend intervening and pulling him off from on top of me just in time. I was 15 when that same twin held a butcher knife to my throat, and, again, a friend intervened. You see... My stepbrother had been harassing my best friend Mary, and when I told him to leave her alone, he punched me in the tit. I was wearing a one-inch spiked bracelet and brought it straight down into his arm. He went upstairs and grabbed a butcher knife and cornered me in the basement where I was sitting on the couch. My friend Chris told my stepbrother that he could go ahead and slit my throat with that knife, but that he was confident he could get to his gun and shoot him dead faster than the speed at which my stepbrother could get away. I still believe this is the only reason why he didn't actually do it. This is perhaps the greatest irony of my life. My mom moved us out of Flint to get us away from the crime and violence. We ended up in a quiet shithole town where all the violence and crime lived under the same roof as us. In the approximately three years that we lived in the same household, I was, along with my mother, subjected to regular verbal threats, physical violence, and drug-addled rages perpetrated by the twins. They regularly described to my mother how they were going to kill her. There were times when I stepped between her and them to spare her of whatever they were hurling at her and to take it on to myself. One summer, the police were at our house dozens of times in one month. Our home became so well-known that when I later got a job at a gas station in Ann Arbor and got to know some of the officers and firefighters who came in as regular customers, they knew where I lived just by hearing my name or the name of my stepbrothers. The Sio Township fire chief really came to look out for me in the time I spent working at that gas station. When I worked up the courage to tell my mom that one of the twins was regularly grabbing my breasts and calling me sweet tits, she confronted their father, and he basically responded with, Boys will be boys. I know, right? Shocker. I did not dare to tell her about the time that I was coerced into performing oral sex on one of their friends, in front of them, on the floor of our garage. I didn't finally tell her until I was in my early 20s. The twins shot heroin, smoked crack, and drank heavily in and around our home, committing a laundry list of crimes while under the influence. Every time they were arrested, I would hope that that would be the time they stayed in jail and we would be safe for a while. Unfortunately, their father had a decent income and bailed them out repeatedly and pretty much immediately every time. I'll never forget the night when he said, with pure hatred and vitriol hurled at my mother, that his sons were innocent pawns in a sick and twisted game that she and her daughter were playing. The man was the king of Denial Island. Whatever childlike innocence I clung to after leaving Flint was annihilated while living with the twins and Mark. I found out recently, at the age of 35, that the police chief in Chelsea came to our house one day to talk with my mom. He told her that it wasn't a habit of his to tell other people what to do with their lives, but that, quote, those boys were going to kill someone eventually, and that he didn't want it to be her or her girls. Thank God he decided to stick his nose in our business and have that talk with my mom that day. It seems to have impacted her decision to get the hell out of there when she did. The Midnight Train During the years with my stepbrothers, my friends became my salvation. They were my real family. Back then, I didn't just hate going home, most nights I was afraid to. So, I'd take any opportunity I could to stay out as late as possible. These circumstances are why I spent such a significant amount of time at Brian and Lenny's apartment in high school. The ritual of watching the midnight train with my group of deeply bonded friends started and ended the summer I turned 15. Those summer nights on the shores of the Huron River were always ones to remember. There were few life-changing moments, but to me, that whole summer was life-changing. My friends and I hung out on the banks of the river and waited every night for our dreams to screech by on the rails of the train tracks. Our tradition was to watch the midnight train and dream about where it might take us and what we'd do once it got us there. This was the kind of whimsical romanticism I believe one only gets to enjoy during adolescence. After the train passed, usually sometime after midnight, we would go to the Fleetwood Diner in downtown Ann Arbor for chili cheese fries and coffee. We would talk for what seemed like forever about whatever we were dreaming or carrying in our hearts. This core group that hung out so frequently that summer included Erin and her sister Jenny, Rayan and Chris, the group's power couple, Brian, a different Brian, not my boyfriend but more like a brother, and myself. Most of us had something we were running away from. Or something new we wanted to see or do. Rayanne always talked about California. By this time, I was dreaming of being a famous writer in New York City. The thirst for adventure was quenched for all of us just a little every night when the midnight train came in. The environment around the river is beautiful. Here on River Drive is a windy road canopied by trees and surrounded by wooded areas, parks, and nature reserves. It was generally quiet and peaceful on the part of the river where we used to sit, up under the trestles, so that passersby wouldn't detect us. The only noise came from the train and us. Rhiannon was famous for asking the most random questions, something like, Kelly, would you still love me if my eyes were orange? The way that Rhiannon always posed these types of questions, always, if X is Y, then will you still love me? it was like she was afraid that at any moment she would blink and we would all disappear. I would regularly respond with, I'll always love you, Nanon, even if all the stars fall from the sky. She would smile and take that as good enough assurance. Chris was wild, a total redneck deeply entrenched in a crew full of city kids. He drove his Mustang like he was Mario Andretti, and I'm still amazed we never had any wrecks, if I'm being perfectly honest. He did have wrecks with other friends, I just wasn't in the car. When I think of him that summer, I can picture him stone on pot, walking on the rails, in a one-man balancing act. He always called us fuckers, like that was our collective name. I don't know, fuckers, what does it look like I'm doing? heh. <laughs> That's how I hear him in my head, thinking back. Chris must have been 17 or 18 back then because he was older than us and wasn't ever in school at the same time we were. Chris was a hick and a pig, but you had to love the guy, if for no other reason than because he could always make you laugh. He was a goofball, but he was serious about his friendships. Chris looked out for everyone, especially me, and is the same friend who persuaded my stepbrother not to slit my throat. Brian and Chris were like brothers to one another, absolute best friends. Brian was a criminal, honestly, not unlike a lot of my friends back then. You can call it cliche if you want, but the thing about it is, you hang out with the hardest people possible when you're living inside a live explosive, ready to be detonated at any moment. I hung out with the criminals and thugs because they took care of me, and there was this strange code of conduct among them, too as though I wasn't to be touched by the dumbass shit they were up to. I remember more than once when members of the crew would hug me, tell me they loved me, and say goodbye out of nowhere. That was my cue that trouble was about to pop off, and I best get as far away from it as possible. Erin was a total spaz, and had a gluttonous appetite for attention. She often came off as faking or exaggerating anxiety attacks and bad drug trips, just so that everyone would fawn over her. Most of the time we all played into it because, no matter how you looked at it, something was eating that girl up inside, even if it was only herself. Rana was Aaron's best friend and like a sister to me, but she was also a bit of a spaz. She was rail thin, and if the light hit her hands just right, you could almost see through them. That's how pale she seemed. Jenny was Aaron's older sister and felt like a sister to me as well. Jenny was smart and did well in school and seemed way more straight-laced than the rest of us. I don't know how she tolerated us sometimes because I recall her being the voice of reason amidst our dumb ideas often. That same summer, Jenny took me to my very first music festival, the first ever bands work tour. We saw Less Than Jake, Blink-182, and the Mighty Mighty Bosstones among others. I bought a 7-inch vinyl record One side was Real Big Fish and the other Goldfinger. Jenny had gotten me my ticket for my birthday, and to this day, it's one of the best birthdays I've ever had. We never knew what it was that the train carried, whether it was people or animals, corporate chain store stock, or nothing at all. Our dreams weighed heavy on our fascination with the train. We often talked about where it might be headed we assumed it was some place gorgeous and sunny, like California. In fact, I think that's the only place we ever named. I guess to a bunch of kids living in a city in the Midwest, California sounds super fucking exciting. Whenever we heard the whistle of the train in the distance, it was like hearing a call to arms for all dreamers. It was letting us know that we'd better get ready because we were only going to have a short minute to gaze at it and let our imaginations run wild, before we lost it in the distance of the night and had to start waiting on it all over again. The whistle was also our cue to get as close as we dared to the tracks, to feel the breeze of the rushing steel. I was afraid of almost everything back then, including loud noises, and my own shadow, so I stood back farther than anyone else. The train looked rickety and old, and I sometimes wondered while standing there if it wasn't going to just give up and lay down off to the side somewhere, hoping to be forgotten. It looked as though there wasn't a place in the world it hadn't been, not a single secret it hadn't told. The train seemed wise. If you listened hard enough, the old wheels running along the rusted tracks would scream songs of many lifetimes at you as it whizzed by blasting a breeze in your face and making your lungs feel like they could burst at any moment. The second it was far enough past us in the distance not to be seen anymore, it was time for the heartburn, sugar, and caffeine. Sometimes those middle-of-the-night garbage meals at the Fleetwood Diner were the only meal we had all day. Having a good meal usually meant having to head back home. And this was not a popular or frequently chosen option for most of us, especially me. The Fleetwood was an essential part of our late night ritual because it offered us an open forum of freedom. The diner was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And no one ever bothered us about how young we were, whether we should be getting home or whether we were old enough to be smoking the cigarettes we had. We could sit there for as long as we pleased and feel just like everyone else because everyone was there after a long day. And it seemed like just about everyone was there because there was nowhere else they had to be. That seems like a good place to leave off because there's still quite a bit of chapter five to go. And we're already at about 45 minutes. So stay tuned for next time. We'll finish chapter five. And don't forget, if you go and drop a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify, you can either email me a screenshot at hello at kellyjmendenhall.com or you can hit me up on any of the socials and send me a DM screenshot of your rating and review, and I'll send you that free coloring book. And if you want to see what the coloring book looks like, I mean, you could just trust me that it's super cool. But I'm going to be posting some scrolling videos of it on my socials too. So until next time, have a what (laughs) whatever time frame you're on, whatever space you are in, have a good one. And we'll be together again soon.